Hello and welcome. This show helps you to build your company. And I'm your host Petri. In this episode, our guest is Jaakko Villa, who was the first CEO and co-founder of Idean, the Finnish global design company. The company managed to build an impressive client list of global brands and a strong reputation across Europe, Asia and North America before it was acquired by Capgemini in 2017. There's a lot to cover. Jaakko is a serial entrepreneur who started early with his grandma, his business career in a small farm. And he's no stranger to basketball, motorcycling or even building online communities. Let's dive in. Why is equality in ownership not a good idea? Well, uh, if you have uh, equal ownership, everything goes um, into trash from from so many different perspectives. Uh, One of the examples is that if you have... uh, uh, you have the general meeting, you have the board of directors, the management team and, and the operational team present at the same time. It's, uh, if not fully impossible, it's, it's nearly impossible to have anything uh, that is under argumentation uh, to be decided and, and then moved forward. Uh, the roles, uh, everything... Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to manage the company. Sounds like you have some personal experience. Can you elaborate? Mm, one of the first companies I was involved with, uh, we had equal shares, 20% each. At the time, the difficulty started. And, and I, I was the CEO for, for uh, about seven years. And uh, uh, when... We didn't have anything. Equal ownership was just okay. But when, when we had uh, the business booming or growing steadily, sometimes faster, sometimes a little bit slower, uh, difficulty started. And, and one of the reasons was that as, as a CEO, um, I wanted to do some things according to the strategy that we uh, ha- had decided. And, and I called, uh, let's say I called the management team together and, and then we decided to do something. But if in the management team there were opposing opinions or opinions from, from uh, the owners that they didn't want to do according to what uh, I had decided as, as a CEO or what we thought was the best uh, from the strategical perspective, uh, they could do it. There were no tools, nothing to uh, guide them or direct them or order them to follow up what has happened with the decisions that we made in the management team meeting. That's that's one of the issues. And, and then um, in general, I would say that in startups and, and, and scale-ups, it's always better to have... A master's voice, somebody who can who can make the final decision and who has the final uh, go or no go decision in different uh, different uh, decisions to be made. If it's all too equal, it's uh, it's very difficult. It's random. It doesn't have a dynamic view to to the company's. Uh, present uh, forward-looking uh, operations. 
Is it because of the, the background of the people or can it actually work in some instances? For example, if you split the company between two founders 50-50 and, and then you start to take uh, investors and other people on or is it uh, because uh, those founders are in all basically all the roles at the same time, they are in the board and they are owners and there's a whole agreement and it's just basically same stuff or is it because of the uh, different uh, background and roles of the people in the company that some are more involved to the business side and some are into other aspects and and there's sort of a discrepancy between the how understanding and, and agreement how to grow the company or can you be a bit more specific in what circumstances it works and in your experience as well what is the setup you would like to do now knowing everything you know? I think it, it is a mixture of everything that, that you mentioned and, and probably some other things too. Um, what I would like to have and, and what I have practiced after that is that uh, there has to be somebody who has always uh, the final say. The final say cannot come from chairman of the board if he owns or she owns as many shares as, uh, let's say, the CEO or the management team. And uh, sort of organizing the operational structure in, in the companies is very, very difficult if you have several owners who, who own the same amount of shares. Uh, and to you, face-to-face, -face, they say that, okay, let's do this, but they know that they have always the opportunity to do something else if they want. Did something happen? Because I, I feel there's more to the story. Can you maybe walk us through a bit of how do you get started with the company? You, you were there seven years as a CEO and building the company and making it international and you managed to put a, a impressive list of clients, global big companies and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of stories you could tell us. Uh, yeah. Probably something then, some turmoil as well. Yes, definitely. We started the company '99 uh, 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 with the name Suomen Oye, or we were four very novice, uh, how do I say, youngsters without true professions. I, I was the only one who had already quit the university and had had my master thesis done, and I, I was actually working uh, just. Just the uh, previous two years in, in the uh, Theatre Academy of, of Finland, uh, the higher education center there. And then one of the three other guys called me and asked me to, to join a meeting in Jyväskylä, uh, the Athens of, of Finland, uh, to, to talk about an idea. And they had this, uh, this um, how would I say, intriguing and fascinating idea to build a company called Suomen Oye and start doing um, educational training, mostly in the Ostropotnian area of Finland for the municipalities and local entrepreneurs. And I thought that, hey, this is a crazy enough idea for me to join because I, I have always thought that if there's... Uh, only one thing that you can fully rely on, it is yourself. And and uh, with that type of a company, I thought that, yeah, uh, we definitely can do something and, and it, it might be fun. And I had been 
doing uh, training and education in, in the theater academy and I knew how to do it and, and so I joined them and and actually in the beginning in in the very very first months we didn't have um, equal ownership in, in the company I had if I remember I had 14 percent or, or something and and uh, then then we started doing uh, the uh, training programs in Ostrobotnia and and we were sort of happy with that because we we gained some customers and and we gained uh, uh, better revenues than than we thought in in the first place and uh, we decided that we will um, change the ownership so that every one of us four guys had the same amount, 25%. Um, and that's that's what we did. And, and soon after, let's say it was uh, one year after the founding of, of the company, uh, one of, of the founders, one of the co-founders uh, called Mikko Pekka, he came with a train from Tampere to Helsinki and, and I was waiting for him in, in the railway station, Helsinki railway station. And and he literally had shivering hands and shivering voice. Uh, he came to me that, and said that I had uh, this excellent discussion with a guy I met in a train, and and he he's from Nokia. He's an executive from Nokia, and and, uh, and uh, he we had this fruitful discussion, and he said that uh, maybe in the future we could do something together. And I said to him that, uh, to Mikko Becca, that now uh, call him immediately and, and try to arrange a meeting. And, and it was less than a month when we started doing project work for Nokia. And maybe in the end, at the end of, of the first project, maybe three months or, or so, uh, Nokia told us, that hey guys, uh, you have excellent approach in your work, and and uh, what you are actually doing is usability testing and and usability work, and and we didn't even know uh, such a term existed at the time. We just they asked us to do some research with some uh, users and and give them uh, prototypes of of new uh, digital. Um, mobile services and and that that is what we did and and because of our education as as teachers we uh, sort of our approach to the users already at that uh, time was uh, full and uh, we we wanted to understand why they behave where they come like they do. Where do they come from? What are the internal motivations? What they like about what they would like to see in the new prototype service? And and uh, we decided to report that to, to Nokia. And they thought that this is a new approach. It's uh, interesting. It's fruitful. Nowadays, you might call that approach service design or... or um, participatory design uh, or, or they, they, there are many many names uh, with that nowadays 20 something years ago uh, there was no no domain 
for that and no terminology and we didn't know exactly what we were doing but it was beneficial for them uh, our business started to move from uh, educational training with Suomen OEA for the Ostrobotnian entrepreneurs towards commercial design projects with Nokia and soon after uh, other customers in the booming digital uh, wave that that we had uh, 20 years ago. We were pretty lucky with timing. It was 2000, it was booming and, and you know, you probably went together with Nokia uh, with the internationalization. Yes, we did. Yes, yes. Uh, one, one of the learnings that I have is, is that Uh, timing is is everything. It it means everything. Uh, you can have the best idea for your business. You can have the best team to execute anything. You you can have uh, uh, the funding. You can have everything. But if if the timing fails, your business most likely fails. Uh, there's uh, there's some evidence also supporting that. You probably do remember a guy called Guy Kawasaki. Uh, he made research regarding uh, the biggest reasons why startups and, and scale-ups fail. And uh, surprisingly, the biggest reason is the timing of the business. And, and we were very lucky. We definitely were very lucky in, in so many different things. Uh, just let, let's say the... Uh, uh, Not only timing-wise, but also that Mikko Becker was in the train. I started talking, uh, sat opposite to a person who was interesting and open to discuss with uh, 23, 24-year-old young uh, entrepreneurs. And, and uh, then we decided to take an advantage of that discussion and, and uh, our First projects were successful, and yes, we were very lucky. Also, after that, we went uh, with Nokia to Singapore 2000. I, I might remember this uh, wrong, but I believe it was 2003 or four. Uh, soon after that, to China in Shanghai 2004 or five, and then to London and. And uh, then we had 2006 when when uh, I was still uh, the CEO. We had uh, subsidiaries in all those countries in Finland. We had Jyväskylä, Tampere, and the, the headquarters in in Espo. Uh, I believe something well. A bit more than 70 consultants altogether, I believe. And, and the biggest one reason is the timing and uh, sort of the, um, how, how would I say, the willingness to utilize the opportunities that come close to you. But it sounds like that your ownership structure didn't prevent you do those things. Uh, in, in the beginning, definitely no. When we didn't have anything to share, everyone was together, everyone was uh, united and, and unified in, in so many different ways. That's uh, euphoric, it's ecstatic. You, you, you see an opportunity, you run towards it, you manage to solve problems and, and challenges, and you, you can 
accomplish huge things together with uh, your key team. That that was wonderful. Uh, then um, when you have uh, uh, little uh, slower growth period and the plans that you have made for fast growth don't don't really uh, happen as they are supposed to, or you have a lot to share uh, in in your company. Let's say you have uh, you, you you can share out some dividends. You can divide what you want to do with your budget. You can have real strategy that is not only reactive. You can predict things and and you can decide where you put your focus into. That's when the voices uh, that have been passive during the fast growth because you had so many things to do or they had been passive because there was nothing to share um, among the group, then those voices become much louder. When you have more volumes, you, you can decide where to focus, what are the actions that you, you will do uh, I believe it was uh, 2004 or, or something. We made very small uh, acquisition of, of a small design company, and uh, the other owner of the design company became the fifth equal owner of Idean. It, it was no OEA anymore at that time. It, it, it was called Idean. Can you explain the name? Yeah, there's a story also behind that. Why we changed it? Uh, I don't know that. I, uh, I'm more curious about the story, how it came up in the first place. Do you mean Suomen Oje? Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, uh, first, I, I, I need to say that, that uh, how, how do you call them? They, they were, um, I believe there was a Yahoo already existing at that time but but there was was to finish another one yeah but it became after us but soon soon yippee and yahoo and uh, can't remember the other ones who had funny names like that uh, they didn't um, give us uh, good karma if you want to say that also, we had uh, some projects in the Midlands of Northern America, and the way how they pronounced "oh yeah" was very close to Ouija. You know the uh, Spiritism board, and we thought that uh, maybe this is not the best idea to have a company called "oh yeah" from the credibility perspective or, or from internationalization perspective or from any other perspectives that we could imagine and, and were discussing about them. And uh, it, it, it was um, it was Risto uh, who then came up with a new name called IDN, and, and uh, we, we decided to go with that, and uh, it was much better. It was easier to understand, it was easier to pronounce, it, it was uh, shorter than Suomen Oye, and yeah. Yeah, that's the story behind that. Oh yeah, I I don't know where it came from in the first place. Maybe it was, maybe it was just something that somebody said in in the first meeting that we should have this uh, new company. Oh yeah, and maybe that was the name. Don't remember. 
And then you make it national, calling it Finnish Oh yeah, Suomen. Yeah, we, th- we had, because the trade register, they didn't accept only Oh yeah as our name. There, there had to be something else for it to pass the, the register process. And then we decided that, okay, it's not only Oh yeah, which, does, which doesn't actually mean anything. It, it had to be something else, Suomen Oh yeah. <laughs> Before we went to that uh, name issue, um, did you take any external capital or did you grow with the cash flow? Only with the cash flow. Only with the cash flow. Using other words, uh, money from the customers. We were very cheap in everything that we purchased and everything that we did. We we flew where, where we needed to fly at the times with with the most cheap uh, tickets possible. We lived, accommodated ourselves in in the most cheap motels or hotels possible even in in the US I, I remember that some some of the motels I stayed in there uh, were meant for the truckers I, I wouldn't go there alone nowadays by myself or, or especially with my family it, yeah it, it was uh, uh, only with the customers money and and uh, As I said, as, as long as uh, we didn't have a lot to share, we invested everything. Every single euro we received from the customer, we invested it in, into growth and uh, building the business. And there was the timing again, because there was uh, so many customers, so many projects, so, so, um, uh, so much to gain uh, both domestically in, in Finland and, and internationally, that it was sort of easy decision to uh, invest into growth. But then there was some downturn, and uh, that's when when the um, struggling of the uh, strategical decisions and, and uh, doing things to get a start. And this is moving to, to something else already, but I, I guess it's it's okay in this type of, of uh, free discussion. Absolutely. Uh, I hired COO, Chief Operating Officer, uh, early 2006 after having discussions with this uh, man maybe half a year already before he joined IDEA. And, and, and uh, the main idea was that this man, uh, maybe five years older than the rest of us, who had been a um, lawyer, who had been um, taking care of, of uh, the financials in, in many companies, who had been uh, responsible for the um, human resources and, and uh, all the bureaucracy that I didn't enjoy that much at the time. Um, I thought, and uh, everyone inside the company thought that this is a good match and, and uh, he had been working in Andersen Consulting and, and he, he uh, as, as at least that is what we thought, he, he knew how to to uh, put more gas in the flames and how to grow us much faster than, than we had been able to do before him joining us. But it was only 
um, a matter of some months when I started to realize that, hey, now uh, the um, general atmosphere at the office um, among us owners and and the management team has somehow changed. And uh, then uh, 2006, spring 2006, uh, we ended up discussing about what to do because we had all, already some millions of euros of of revenues and uh, we could do some from focusing and, and in investing in, in different things freely with the money from our customers. Uh, this, this guy, this uh, new CEO, uh, he had different ideas of how to grow the company and, and, and he was a great salesman uh, to the rest of the owners and, and uh, I think I have not this is not um, a true fact because I haven't discussed this with with the rest of the owners. But I, I believe that he had so different thoughts about the strategy and how to build the company to to the next phase, next growth phase. That uh, basically he said that uh, we need a different type of a C of a CEO for the company for the next years. That's okay. That's definitely okay. Uh, different personalities, uh, company needs a different personality CEO uh, in, in different phases of, of their growth. And that, that was okay for me. And, and um, I guess August 2006, uh, after several discussions, we decided that, okay, let's, uh, let's get a new CEO for the company. And and we chose an agency, headhunting agency for that, and uh, started the process with them. And uh, after that, it was maybe only two weeks or so when I realized, even though I had initiated uh, the headhunting process, I, I realized that uh, the process is, is um, not a real process because the rest of the owners had already decided that this COO will be the next CEO uh, to replace me. And when I realized that, I, I called the general meeting uh, for the company and, and explained my side of, of the story and, and said that, uh, okay, it's, it's okay for me if we change the CEO, I can take a sabbatical leave or so and come back later on. Uh, but if this COO and then I explained what I had felt that he had done during 2006. If, if he takes my place, I, I will not work for the company anymore. And, and uh, after that, I, I took my sabbatical leave. That was supposed to be three months or so. And uh, uh, I had been maybe three weeks or so, which of uh, two weeks with my six-year-old son in, in uh, uh, Tenerife, I, I believe, uh, I decided that I, I will never go back to work in that organization because of what the rest of the owners, equal ownership owners, had decided and how they handled the process. And, and uh, because I thought that the ideas that the CEO I had brought to the company uh, were stupid, to be honest. They were uh, not something that I, I had any belief in. Uh, and uh, 
they were also somewhat unethical and uh, I, I just thought that I, I have to stick with my ethical uh, principles and, and still be able to um, see myself in the mirror every morning and and I, ha- I have to do something. And then early 2007, uh, I said that, guys, now you can uh, purchase my shares and, and I will leave the company. So let me recap. So uh, you recruited a COO and then uh, the other founders, the other shareholders started to get some ideas that maybe uh, you need to be replaced. How did that make you feel? Uh, well... Uh, when I realized that, I, I, I thought that uh, it is something temporarily, temporarily uh, and goes away, uh, but it didn't. And, and then I started talking about sharing my thoughts with uh, the rest of the founders and, and the dynamics in the founders. We were five and uh, had uh, equal ownership, uh, but the dynamics were such that there were sort of two more dominating personalities uh, amongst the five of us. I, I was the other one, and then there was uh, other person. And uh, I started discussing with the other person a lot with, with the rest of them, some discussions, but with this guy quite a lot. And, and we ended up in, into endless discussions about uh, what should be done, what has been done. And, and as, as my style in, in the leader uh, positions is that uh, I don't keep my opinions uh, only to myself. I, I say them loud and the people know what I think about things uh, and what I like, what I don't like about them. Of course, in that type of, of discussions, uh, all the old uh, disagreements, uh, the pain points, everything from the previous six, seven years started bubbling, uh, first bubbling under and then uh, came to the surface. And, and uh, that was terrible time uh, I had... And I believe that we all had terrible time 2006, uh, the second and third quarter, and maybe also the fourth quarter, 2006. No one wanted it, but somehow we ended up into to, uh, fighting. Uh, uh, and uh, for me, that that was, of, of course, that, that was terrible. I thought that uh, the guys had... Um, um, sold their ethical um, standpoints to a new go- new person who had been there only for a couple of, of months uh, and they had somehow forgotten our history, successful history of building an internationalizing company with only the customer's money. Uh, and uh, I thought that was terrible, and even uh, and I also believe that they didn't like about it, but they had made their opinion, and then it was uh, myself and the other dominating guy against each other, and 
And even today, when we met very, very rarely, but when we meet, uh, we uh, don't invite ourselves to, to visit our families or, or homes, uh, which reminds me, again, this is a funny story from maybe five uh, years back. Uh, one of the founders, I, I met him in slush evening meeting, and, and I believe that he had been drinking a little, and, and he, he came to me um, and, and uh, hugged, we hugged, and, and we were happily discussing about how life is great, and uh, it is a pity that that we haven't met with our families for so many years, and we should do that, and why don't we invite you to our house, and and the great to to establish the relationship again and and everything and i thought okay this is nice now now we can fix if uh, all all the broken relations and and uh, then then it was <laughs> it was funny the next week i uh i don't know what type type of of thing happened there but i, I happened to see him giving a speech about what had happened in idea and what kind of uh, growth story it had. And he was lying to the camera and the audience, uh, the live audience and, and the recording about how everything started and, and who there were. And uh, he had left me out from everything. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't do anything but laugh. But then I sent him an email saying that, hey, uh, we just met the previous week and we had this great time, 20 minutes, and we, we decided that, that we should meet with our families soon again. And now you, you betrayed at least me in front of the audience. Why do you do this? And, and he never replied. I, I think that's very that's sporting for anyone to do. Uh, it's not a very courageous thing to do. And, and uh, I, I can't see why, but uh, I've also uh, noticed that in, in quite many stories that have been given about uh, how IDN uh, started, what has happened, and how the success story really, really built itself, so to speak. Um, they have... Uh, systematically left me out I don't care about it anymore but I'm just I'm just um, I, I feel a little a little sorry for them uh, for for us for original and then the fifth equal owner uh, who were such a unified core team doing everything together and then something happened and, and uh, then one, one of them, which happened to be me, but I'm afraid it could have been anyone else, uh, then the person is non-existent also from the past times. But I think the story is so good that uh, if they decided they would have made a good story of, of it. We had a, a early CEO who, who was able to grow the company up to that point, then we hired a COO, uh, which didn't work so well. They had to actually fire the new CEO almost, uh, well, about a year after they had hired him first because his ideas 
were terrible. They didn't work well at all. But then uh, with the last uh, funding the company had, one of the original founders went to uh, United States and, and uh, started business there. And, and then it really uh, boomed everything and, and uh, the rest is history. I think it would have been a good story written like that or spoke out like that. Was there anything, obviously you've been thinking this quite a lot, I would imagine, was there any sort of warning signs? So if there's someone in the audience who's thinking that, okay, hey, I'm the CEO, I've been here like five years, six years, and is there something I should be worried about? This is, yes, a good question. This is, uh, this is where it comes to the equal ownership structure. Uh, these type of things cannot happen easily if there is someone, one person, no matter who, if there's one person who has the final say into everything. But if, if there's uh, uh, intervention coming externally, uh, someone can make a great sales pitch, uh, people, uh, some uh, smaller group, of the owners buys the stories uh, and uh, uh, the, the ownership structure allows it, then this kind of things can happen. The, the warning signs that I, I noticed were that uh, the COO whom I thought I knew from uh, the lesser lesser life um, and from his previous um, corporations he had worked in uh, also started to act a little bit differently towards me and uh, towards the rest of, of the owners quite soon after he had been in the company. And that should be noted and, uh, and the air should be cleared uh, immediately when in the management position, in an executive position in the company, you notice that your almost peer uh, person who is in, in a key position starts acting weirdly. There's always a reason for that, and uh, you should talk about that before uh, things like uh, the processes, like I mentioned, happen. Like you mentioned in the beginning, you agree that you know maybe there's a need for a new CEO and you find some other role in the company and, and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. So that was not the case. So I guess the company was in already seven years going and it was okay. We, we've been achieving quite a lot. So maybe we need some changes and shift gears. And, and you also mentioned that there was some turmoil and something did not exactly go as planned. So there were probably stuff happening underneath and just any change is better than no change and then there, there was an opportunity which sort of emerged and, and this sort of took this shape yes 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 in the beginning i i, I didn't i i couldn't even imagine that uh, they would like to to um, have a new ceo in the company but when I realized that it, it was very difficult for me to swallow the idea that uh, I'm not the best CEO in, in the company, but after, after long discussions with myself and, and uh, the rest of the owners, uh, I just thought that, hey, that, that can happen, but I need a sabbatical first 
And then when I come back, let's see what I can do. I had been responsible for the biggest uh, customer that we had, Nokia, uh, from the beginning. And, and uh, uh, it was, can't remember what, but I, I guess that it was even 2006, uh, more than, well, about 50% of total revenues. So I thought that I'm still needed there and there were things that I could do. So, so I couldn't imagine it, but when I realized that, uh, I, I thought that a change in the dynamics, in the roles uh, is, is needed and um, I was okay with that. So what happened next? You left. Yes, I, I left. I left the building and uh, later, 2007, I, I started a company called Solution Space. And uh, uh, in less than six months, we opened a branch in Shanghai. I had some some uh, network there uh, who were willing to uh, buy our services, which were different from what I uh, what we had in IDN, and uh, then we uh, 2000 and maybe 2008 uh, we opened an office in Japan in in Tokyo. How did you structure the new company? You were the only founder, and did you get some investment money, or how, how did you get that started? In the beginning, um, th- that was one of, one of the. Uh, one, one of the principles that I had, that I, I will not own less than 50% of a company if, if I'm, I'm the CEO and responsible there. I had two other guys who, who were co-founders with me. They had 20% total, I believe, and I, I had the 80% in, in the beginning. And, and we, we didn't have any, any external money uh, before uh, we had our first angel in, investor coming in, um, maybe that was uh, 2008, late 2007 or, or 2008, and, and he, he invested some money and he had also good connections uh, everywhere, and, and uh, he, he, became, he came to the board, uh, director of, of the board, chairman, and, and uh, everything went quite nice there we, we we had soon we had customers and and we we decided to start growing the business so what did it, you exactly did oh yeah i uh even even in in idea and i had this idea that uh there are big companies who who especially during those years they did a lot of market research and, and user research uh, for the products and services and business and, and business models and, and everything uh, internationally, if not globally. And they didn't do that systematically. Uh, they had consultants traveling from one location to the next location doing the interviews, the studies there, and then after that to third, fourth, and fifth location maybe before they had gathered all, all the data from the markets and, and uh, interviewed all, all the um, users they wanted. And uh, after those two, three, four weeks, they came back, started doing the research report, 
and maybe two months after starting the project, uh, the customer had had the report and, and suggestions and everything. And I thought that that could be done differently. And I started building in, in solution space a network of independent agencies in different places who could gather the data um, in well-thought uh, environment, uh, almost like a lab type of, of lab environment. And they would have uh, the research subjects, users, consumers ready and and uh, the customers could um, uh, simultaneously operate the research project uh, at the same time in different locations so that they could reduce the time, uh, the throughput time of a project from two months to uh, one week or so. And that's what we started to build uh, in the first place in, in Solution Space 2007. Then I sold that idea to uh, some customers and and, uh, and started to drafting uh, software that would support that type of data gathering and and also the um, management of the agencies uh, even from the sourcing perspective and and uh, the qualitative aspects were all considered there um, and uh, then I went pitching the idea to Nokia and they thought that's a great idea they invested uh, some money into software development and, and we piloted it in three continents and the results were great and uh, and uh, I thought that okay this is a good business then I made them an offer uh, for the next years and uh, and they said verbally to me that yes this is great let's do this but unfortunately that was the month when uh, Nokia crashed in mobile phones totally. Maybe that was even the month when Stephen Elop had had his uh, burning platform uh, speech or, or the letter for all, all the people there. And, and then even though it was verbally accepted already, the offer, uh, it, it never realized. So that was sort of a black swan uh, for the business development at the time. So did you pivot the business or...? Fold it all. What happened? Uh, yes, I, I I pivoted it after that. I first actually uh, after realizing that that this will not happen with Nokia, I, I went to all the big uh, mobile phone manufacturers and I visited them and and said that hey, we have this um, ready-made software for you for this purpose and and it has this type of of uh, uh, of um, data gathering methodology as part of it implemented it so that you can you can just take it in use and uh, you will uh, reduce the the amount of of time spending this and this much and uh, the amount of money uh, with the sourcing elements it had and and everything and and they said that hey this is a great idea but we don't follow the same methodology and and uh, they never accepted it uh, to my disappointment 
that is, by the way, one of the learnings uh, that you have asked previously. Uh, do not never trust one single company as your customer too much. Have always backup plans and have something else boiling or sell it to other companies, other customers at the same time. Because if, if that one company fails for some reason, external reason, like in, in that case, um, uh, yeah, uh, Victoros Nokia mobile phone manufacturing globally crashed, then your business is just part of the damages, collateral damages, if you want. Recently, uh, when COVID hit, you were also doing a bit of a transformation and not pivot, but transformation from direct sales to online sales. Can you walk us through how did that go and was there something for other people to learn? Uh, yes. Uh, to start with, um, that, that is, by the way, the same original company that was doing the software for Nokia. I, I pivoted it after the Nokia crash and we started doing online communities. It was easy to um, so, sort of pivot the business into online communities because may, maybe maybe 50% of what we had there in the software were usable for this different purpose. Uh, the on, online communities where you can ask different uh, stakeholders to join a community and, and there you can do innovation or testing or marketing, uh, inside gathering uh, projects uh, together with them uh, with full interaction methods and, and uh, you can analyze everything. We pivoted it, it into that direction and, and uh, uh, well, we had to uh, we had to rewrite a lot of, of the code, of, of course. But then uh, we had uh, quite good business starting about a year ago, uh, early 2020. And, and uh, we had many big, good companies who were, uh, already had or were, were about to start uh, online communities with our SaaS software. Uh, but then the COVID happened and uh, it, it became evident that uh, the few big companies that I had been able to make the relationship with uh, the di direct sales type of methodology were not enough. Uh, some of them uh, passed the opportunity to start working with us, even though they had already said uh, that, yes, let's do this. But when the COVID hit, it hit also the big companies. and. They didn't want to start anything new there. So uh, after analyzing uh, what had happened and what COVID or the pandemic uh, does for the sales and, and for the company, I decided that uh, now we need to change our sales model in full. And, and uh, we went from uh, direct sales, which had been enough, into uh, digital sales and I thought that okay it's it's easy it's simple let's start doing uh, the sales with more volumes but of course the devil lies in the details and it was not that simple and easy and uh, we had to change everything in 
as an example, in direct sales, what you need to do is that you need to take care of your customers uh, in sort of old-fashioned way, just making sure that everything is right and and uh, they know everything that that they need and they can do uh, with your services everything that they want to do and and uh, oversee that the chemistry is okay but in in the digital sales uh, when the volumes are higher and even if they are not higher you need to take care of the processes the digital processes that uh, the customers are utilizing um, Starting a new customership or maintaining a customership, when it is uh, more in, in digital channels, whether it's on one or multi-channel uh, process, uh, you have to focus a lot more into them and, and you have to organize your sales team and your customer support team and customer care team uh, around the digital sales processes and and for me, who had been doing uh, direct sales for the last 20 years, it, it was um, surprisingly different from what I had experienced and, and what I knew well to go towards the digital sales. What was the most painful thing and what was the, a nice surprise you didn't expect to happen? I think the most painful thing that, uh, that there, there was... Uh, is uh, changing the culture from the direct sales and only a few customers taking care of a few customers, knowing them well and and their uh, account managers or, or whatever the, uh, they they have there in, in the team, changing that culture towards higher volumes towards. Uh, uh, digital processes and then managing the digital processes. Uh, but there, the biggest nice surprise that I think came from that is uh, the metrics. You can you can measure almost everything there. Every action that you do in in your sales team, every transaction the customer has with your uh, software. Uh, you, you can you can even develop different automatic processes. Uh, if if a customer does uh, something in their uh, software, you can start a process say that automatic process uh, taking care that takes care of of that uh, asking what they could do better or uh, taking care that they can they can solve. Uh, whatever they had had been doing there. So the most painful, in summary, is taking care of the people, the change, the culture, and uh, the most nice surprise is uh, how measurable everything in in the digital world is. Before uh, we went on live, we also discussed about this, and you mentioned that it's simple, but it's not really actually simple. So. Can you remind me and, and tell the audience what was the simple part and what was the, the complex part? Well, the simple part was was to announce that now we go from uh, direct sales to uh, more digital sales mode. Uh, 
but uh, the difficulties be- became there uh, when we had to decide about the details, how to organize everything, how, how to manage uh, the uh, daily actions, how to create reporting, how to set up the goals, the sales goals, the contacting goals, uh, objectives towards the customer success. Uh, it's, I think it's always about that. You can conceptually, you can you can announce things easily, but when it comes to the detail, even with this uh, at least conceptually simple thing going from direct sales to towards the digital sales, uh, the amount of details is surprisingly big, and and you have to do things systematically. We started. Uh, the process, the change process uh, in maybe February last year, and we ended up doing many things uh, better by end of August. Uh, but in in September, or maybe it was October, we decided that we will start cooperating systematically with a company who does nothing but. Uh, digital sales and digital marketing and and we have learned how to do things systematically everything that you do you need to a b test it which one is better and don't use your emotions use the data to always go with the better one and and always have have something for the a b testing process and and this uh, uh this company who whom we have worked with is called Digital Boost 360. There's, uh, the, the founder is called Mika Heikinheimo, who has who is a serial entrepreneur, and his personality is, is uh, sort of cut the bullshit and do the work, execute it immediately type of personality, and, and it's, it's very systemic. You, you have to do small steps. You have to focus on the smallest details, but do it always, do something every day. And even if the step is very short or, or a baby step, if, if you do it for six months, if you do it for several years, you end up into a successful business eventually. And that's what we've been practicing uh, now a bit more than one year. And, and now um, we see the results. We even, even have... Uh, contacts from uh, uh, companies and, and organizations that we have not even heard of. Uh, people read our um, newsletters quite much. They go into our uh, recently renewed website and, and they read the blogs. They do uh, things there that we hope them to do. They, they even deserve time from, from my or our uh, sales person's uh, calendars to, to get a demo and, and uh, the volumes are, are slowly from my opinion but they are getting higher uh, every month and, and uh, I believe it is only because now we are doing things systematically we focus on, on the details and, and we try to improve our digital sales uh, methodology 
every day and every week. What happens when we can fly again and travel and do basically say direct sales? Do you change anything? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't like to say that I will return back to direct sales or I will not do direct sales at all. Um, I think that we will focus a lot on the digital sales and, and do it even better every week. Also in the future, uh, we can most likely, if everything goes fine, we can start doing digital sales elsewhere from Finland, maybe end, end of this year or so in, in six months or so, if everything goes fine. And uh, my understanding is, is that it will not happen uh, with the direct sales anymore. There will be, of course, there, there will be a, a need to meet people face to face in some occasions. But I, I don't yet know how uh, I will structure uh, the digital sales in the future for the international business. But I guess that it will be with uh, the di digital sales methodology that we now have, and uh, the scaling, the volumes, the Uh, even nowadays, you, you can focus on, on some certain areas with your digital marketing efforts and, and sales efforts. And I believe that's uh, definitely the only way, almost the only way to go for us in the future. How do you see the role of communities in uh, business nowadays? Is it a competitive advantage? Uh, I was just reading... Uh, David Spink's new book called The Business of Belonging, which just came out a few weeks ago. And he talks about how to build businesses or how to build communities. And he sees a lot of uh, uh, similarities between them, that you have to treat your community as a business in a sense that it needs to be self-sustaining in order to thrive. You need resources and dedication. It's more like a startup when you're starting it. Similarly, Um, a company when you start it it's like a community you have a mission you have a purpose and and then you're rallying people around you and, and then you start to build from there and, and obviously need resources as well it's it not that much different but when you already have a, a big company or you're already ha having ongoing business you can still have a lot of these things and involve people so what are your thoughts on, on this matter utilizing online communities uh In, in the Finnish business climate is uh, very poor. There are not many companies who have done it successfully and who know what to do with it. Uh, I would say that almost the only companies who do it well in Finland are uh, some of the big consumer companies who just have so huge volumes that if they decide to start a community, there's always some 10 or 20% of their uh, consumer customers who will join it. And, and of that amount, there's maybe 10 or 15% who are active there. And, and it is uh, self-sustainable, as, as, as you mentioned. Uh, to build successful community, uh, You need to act as, as a startup. It is definitely like that. But that is not the only uh, 
perspective in, in the online communities. You might have an online community for, let's say, uh, research and development purposes. And, and it, it is more like uh, you tell about your new features and, and your new products and, and people give their feedback and, and you could do some testing and, and you could do some de- development and, and even some uh, product in- innovation with your crowd or with your community. Uh, you could have uh, more uh, sales and, and marketing oriented online community where people uh, get to see your uh, latest fancy tingle tangles and and uh, maybe if if they take part in that type of online community they they uh, receive something as incentives to be sort of the first to to purchase them if you want to do it well you you need to that's by the way something that that uh, we have built in into our uh, community methodology you need to have the purpose and, and the mission. You need to know what you want to do with your online community. And then you need to organize your ideas, the themes uh, in the community uh, accordingly. And, and you need to have their uh, people who, who in, uh, in the beginning, who, who create the content that is needed and, and who create uh, uh, the first probes and interactivity for uh, the smaller group that's definitely in, in the beginning you have there in, in the community. And you need to have someone who uh, is overseeing the online community from, let's say, startup entrepreneur's perspective, uh, trying to understand where are the trends, where are the most active uh, discussions, how could I utilize them, where are the next opportunities, where I can go to and, and how I can build on something that. Uh, has been brought up uh, by a community member and how I can and uh, grab the idea and, and uh, just utilize that for, for the purpose that I have and, and the mission that I have in, in the community. That's probably uh, one of the biggest reasons why um, many online communities fail. They don't realize that they need to do their homework so to speak, or the business plan for the online community in, in the beginning when they started. You also been founding another company just recently, and uh, you say that uh, you paid a lot of attention to the values that, you know, is based on the proper values. Can you elaborate what you meant by that? I had to go back to the design industry. Uh, uh, I'm fascinated by the design industry. Uh, I'm, I'm not a designer uh, myself, but I, I value good, great design and, and, and the designers and, and uh, great products and, and designs who work for me and, and they look nice and, and they are easy to use and, and so forth. Um, I had been in, in different industries uh, for almost 10 years. Then I had an opportunity to uh, start a new business with actually uh, a friend of mine who was uh, one of my first customers in in Nokia uh, about 20 years ago. In in his 
personal life, he had an opportunity to do something new and he wanted to do something new. And then we ended up discussing about uh, the new idea of, of um, ethically sustainable design company business model. And uh, after some sessions, uh, we decided to found one by ourselves. And, and uh, uh, there, there are some, some principles that we would like to follow in, in this Alpha Design Partners company. And, and uh, one of them is that we should never do uh, anything that is not good for us and for, for the customer. And, and we have seen all, also uh, design consultancies or agencies uh, who come uh, sell, make, make a great sales pitch, uh, execute the project. And, and once they have done the project, ended the project, uh, they leave and then the company, the customer, um, is left without any support and they should start implementing the new designs and, and it's not uh, a rare thing that uh, the new design is shining and, and polished but it has some elements that uh, are difficult if not impossible to, to implement in, into the product. That's one of the things. And then uh, from uh, the consultancy uh, professionals or the designer's perspective, if they work in, in, in an agency, uh, it's not really rewarding in a long term. If you do a project, uh, you get excited, you get uh, yourself and, and the team energized about doing yet another project, and then you do it with huge amount of energy. A couple of, of weeks or, or months and, and uh, then when everything is ready to be implemented from your perspective you need and you start another project and we decided to uh, change that uh, structure a bit and uh, and it, it has worked well uh, we have already in these few months uh, interesting uh, both domestic and, and international customers and, and we are doing uh, not only the uh, uh, fine-tuning of, of uh, visible user interface elements or the pixels perfect stuff but we are also doing some more a uh, little bit more deep uh, changes for our customers um, maybe the service structure or the product structure and, and we are helping them to do uh, transformation towards more modern style of design um, operations and, and design teams management. It's very interesting. I believe that uh, the learnings I took from IDEAN at the time, uh, the experiences coming from uh, solution space in, in Asia, uh, we did also some, some uh, design-related stuff there. Uh, then uh, building my own uh, software company business, uh, they all somehow come together in this new uh, uh, Alpha Design Partners venture that we have.
So it's interesting. It's it's really interesting. What is your favorite word? <laughs> ah, I guess that I have mentioned it many times here. It's it's probably it's for sure. What is your least favorite word? I don't like world class. I don't like that at all. I think it doesn't mean anything. World class doesn't mean anything, and and for different different reason, I don't like uh, word honestly. <laughs> Those are probably the two least favorite words. What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, what turns me on? I, I think that. Uh, The moments and, and eras of of, uh, of creating something new that solves a big problem uh, that relates to many people. What turns you off? That's easy. It's uh, uh, twofold. The, the other one is the proofless uh, negativism, and the other one is backstabbing. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> There are many. <laughs> There are many. Uh, I'm I'm heavy user of, of curse words. I, I use them in, in different occasions, in, in different tones. Uh, but I guess that some... Should, should I have only one? Yeah, pick your most favorite one. I guess that I use perkele a lot. Can you tell what it means for the English-speaking audience? Uh, it's... Uh, It's the devil. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, at least something that I have now uh, wanted to hear more is the uh, team sports, indoor team sports noise. And, and the other one that I like more and more is the silence. What sound or noise do you hate? Speed camera flash. It doesn't probably make any sound in, into the car, but it is something that I hate as a concept, and, and it, it's it's terrible. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Huh. Uh, I've I've always enjoyed writing, and I've always enjoyed traveling and getting to know with new people and, and new cultures. So, so I would say that it would be some type of nomad journalist. I don't know if, if there's a profession for that. What profession would you not like to do? A politician. That definitely, definitely not a politician. I've, <laughs> I've seen uh, and I know some politicians and, and um, political organizations and, and that, that is a game uh, I would not like to be involved with. Probably, if, if you if you listen to this uh, interview from the beginning, you understand the reasons. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Uh, that's not an easy answer. That's definitely not an easy one to answer. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I would uh, I would like to be a startup of, of a company that would uh, have and, and would preach and practice some kind of 
expertise of versatile thinking skills. Uh, it's, it would probably go somewhere... Uh, an easy answer would be a religion, but I'm not a religious person and I don't like them so much. So I, I wouldn't say a church, but something that would help people in in uh, developing their thinking skills. Any final words for the audience? I think that being an entrepreneur is one of the best things a person can do. Uh, at, at least the uh, as, as a style of living, it's, uh, it's exceptional to, to many others. You can experience the worst and, and the best parts of life during one day and uh, you, you, can be, <laughs> you can be part of them. And for me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really intriguing and fascinating. Just a quick note before we go. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate all your feedback, comments, likes, retweets, posts, and suggestions for future episodes. Let me know if there's any particular topics you would like me to cover, or who would you like to hear in the show. I'm also thinking of doing live discussions on Clubhouse. What do you think? I'm Petri at Clubhouse. The link is also in my social media profiles or in my website petrikander.com, first name, last name, dot com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time.